Welcome to the SBI Podcast, offering CEOs, sales and marketing leaders ideas to make the number. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, CEO and co-founder of SBI, a sales and marketing consultancy dedicated to helping you make your number. You are listening to the weekly podcast series. And today I have an outstanding guest, Chris Majara, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of McGraw-Hill Education, which employs 5,000 people in 44 countries in pursuit of better learning outcomes for students, educators, and administrators via e-learning solutions. Prior to his current role as CMO at McGraw-Hill Education, Chris spent 20-plus years leading marketing teams at some great companies, such as BEA Systems and Kronos. Chris resides in the United Kingdom and received his education at Middlesex University. He is also a fellow of the UK Chartered Institute of Marketing. All right, now that we have established Chris's rather extensive qualifications, let's have some fun with him. Chris speaks fluent German. So, Chris, say good luck making your number in German to our mostly American audience. <laughs> Fantastic. I saw that in your LinkedIn profile and had to work that in here. No worries. That was a bit of a, an outfield question. I had to dig deep into the memories of my days back in good old Germany. <laughs> well, you did great. All right. I was really excited to see that you agreed to be on the show because I think what it is that you're trying to do right now is a fascinating use case. So let me set this up for the audience a little bit. So as I understand it, you are trying to help McGraw-Hill Education go from a traditional textbook publisher to a digital solutions company. Is that correct? That's correct. And many of our listeners run marketing teams for companies trying to reinvent themselves to stay relevant in the digital age. So before I jump into my questions... Chris, can you frame up for the audience in maybe a few sentences or so what you were hired to do and how it is going so far? Sure. Not a problem, Greg. Um, the real challenge here at McGraw-Hill, as you outlined there, is to go through, it's really changing business models from an old textbook print book publishing model to a e-learning digital solutions technology provider. And that is a huge transformation um, in anyone's world. Uh, you know, McGraw-Hill Education has a 125-year history out there. And in the last couple of years, we're really seeing the digital transformation of education um, taking pace or picking up pace all the way around the world, not only in North America, but in the UK and Australia, even Latin America, and increasingly in lots of parts of Asia. So it is a dramatic um, change in education that is um, improving student outcomes um, for all levels of um, students, be they pupils in K-12 to K-20 to even um, postgraduate um, students of professional development as well. So very exciting time. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I don't think there's an industry in the world right now that's not getting disrupted by technology. So, you know, when I think about textbook publishing in a 125-year-old company in the middle of this transformation. Uh, and I think about it from a marketing perspective. I was really intrigued to have you on the show. So let's jump into a little bit and let's, let's discuss the elephant in the room, budget. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's go 
straight in there, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. So no, I mean, coming from a software and IT marketing background, that was probably one of the biggest um, challenges that I faced was really to get my hands around the, the marketing organization and, and budget was a key part of this. Traditional publishers do not spend a significant part of their revenues on, on marketing. But as you move to become more of a technology and solutions provider, you know, that game changes. And increasingly, we're devoting more of our efforts around um, investing in the right talent, the right people, as well as the, the new customer-centric processes that you need, as well as the marketing and sales automation technology that can really help us scale at a global level. Mm-hmm. So pretty dramatic transformation. And we're having to make some pretty tough choices. What do we stop doing um, from the traditional channels of book publishing? And what do we need to start changing and spending more money in terms of reaching our customers and prospective customers directly, creating our direct um, channels to market, as well as completely um, repositioning the brand from a book publisher to a learning science company? Mm-hmm. You know, with regard to budget, I have a very specific question. In the work that I do with my clients, my experience has been that companies trying to reinvent themselves, they need a big marketing budget to do so, but long-tenured executives married to the old business model are reluctant to invest. Have you experienced this? And if so, have you overcome it? What advice would you give to our listeners if they're dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's not an easy journey to go, but I think you've got to paint the vision of where you're going and how you're going to get there. And particularly for the CFOs, it's about demonstrating real value at the end of the day that the the new sales and marketing systems processes um, that we're putting in place will really provide the foundation for a global scalable model. Um, What we inherited here when I arrived is very much a federated model of um, uh, of subsidiaries pretty much doing their own thing in the regions, very decentralized and very tough to get a global view of sales and marketing and um, how you improve the efficiency and effectiveness of those dollars that are being spent globally. So it's a hard uphill task. It's never easy to go to the CFO, CEOs to demand that we need to be spending more in these areas. You've got to prove your worth and prove the value every step of the way. And, you know, we are a private equity-owned company since the last couple of years. So, um, again, they're very much used to seeing business cases put together that really um, that you can believe in. And with the right track record of the individuals that are bringing, that, that are in place to, to transform and make those changes, you know, that's how we're signing up for this. Okay. What was the stimulus? You know, when I think about this company, McGraw-Hill Education, and I think about them going out and hiring a CMO from the software industry like yourself. I mean, that's a pretty bold move. Like, what happened in the business that gave them the confidence to go hire somebody from outside of the industry to come in and transform their company? Yeah, that's a significant change that we've seen throughout all of the other functions. So I was lucky enough to come in sort of pretty much uh, after the first 12 months of being private equity owned and new CEO on board, new president of the international division as well. And they're really looking at where we want to end up in. What's the end of the journey for us? And as I mentioned, it's increasingly becoming a platforms technology provider to the education industry. And um, guess what? You need to hire people with those types of backgrounds and skills. 
um, this nascent talent within the organization, but with such a dramatic business model change, I think everyone recognized that uh, you needed to get proven experience of that software technology world. And it's not just on the marketing side, but the sales side, and even more importantly and crucially on the product development side. So we have a chief digital officer that is really transforming our new product development process and how we develop the right types of digital solutions. And there is a very interesting parallel there between the marketing world and where the education software world is heading, and that's one-to-one personalized, tailored education experiences or learning experiences that really um, there's a very good correlation between the journey that marketing has gone through towards that one-to-one, personalized, tailored, right content at the right place at the right time. Um, And um, I really draw upon that analogy to what we're trying to do in the learning space now. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I want to make the audience aware of the new SBI magazine. There's an article in that magazine written by Jack Whalen, who's the VP of Marketing at Phillips 66, and he discusses how he's using digital marketing to transform the oil and gas industry, which is similar to what Chris is talking about here today in trying to transform the textbook industry. So here's how you can learn more about the magazine and get a copy. Why is it that senior executives, CEOs, CFOs have magazines focused on their success, but sales and marketing leaders don't. General business magazines such as Fortune and Forbes almost never write about sales and marketing issues. At SBI, we know sales and marketing leaders have needs that have gone unmet until now. Introducing the SBI Magazine, the premier magazine dedicated to helping sales and marketing leaders be more successful. Read captivating articles written by professional journalists about how sales and marketing leaders are making the number. Go to salesbenchmarkindex.com and subscribe. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, CEO and co-founder of SBI, and today I'm talking to Chris Majara, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of McGraw-Hill Education. And right before the break, we were having a conversation around how how to justify budget, uh, especially inside of a company that's going through a transformation. And Chris, right around the time that this episode is going to air, it'll be mid-year, and many CMOs will have it a have to prove the marketing budget was spent wisely in the first half of the year before they can spend it for the second half. How does the CMO know if the first half budget worked and generated a return and therefore make the recommendation to continue with the conviction and spend in the second half? Um, You've got to look at those forward-looking indicators. I mean, revenue in this particular industry is very seasonal when you're looking at the university um, entrance points throughout the year, and they do differ uh, around the world as well. So it's not traditional, say, September intake that we're used to in the Western world, but it does change. So in terms of, you know, uh, justifying continue or increasing the spend, you've got to look at your pipeline. You've got to be able to demonstrate and look at your lead demand waterfall and the conversion rates that you're getting there. So all of those forward-looking indicators that can give you confidence along the way that you will ultimately get to your revenue goal at the end of the season or the end of the year. And that's how we're pretty much, how I'm pretty much setting up the system Mm -hmm. to give us um, not only um, that marketing source revenue and pipeline information, but prior to that, the key metrics as far as our campaign analysis is going and our demand generation activities and whether we're reaching the required set of leads 
and how we're converting them to pipeline. And these forward-looking indicators, I'm assuming that they weren't in place before your arrival. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, coming from a print publishing world, it was very much a a channel and B2C type model. And increasingly, as we're selling software solutions, it is becoming far more of a traditional B2B play. And um, there, we're really transforming the sales and marketing systems to become and implement what I would see best in class is buyer-driven sales processes that align to how the customer is buying and also looking at that complete customer experience or the complete life cycle of the customer from not living that buying cycle but then post-sales to customer usage and adoption because a lot of the solutions we're putting out there are now SaaS and cloud-based solutions. So you need to ensure you're getting usage. And once you've got um, the, the usage, then you want to try and get advocacy and really get some key ambassadors and um, key advocates in place that will recommend the solutions. I'm a big believer that you know, advocacy is going to be a key driver of demand generation. And, and you know, back in the day, you know, getting your customers to do the selling for you, that is absolutely the case now, even more so in the digital social media world that we face ourselves in. You know, I had a client tell me the other day, this is old wine in a new bottle. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mean, getting your customers to sell for you, advocacy, I mean, that's been a best practice forever. It's just done digitally now where before it was done word of mouth, right? Yeah, word of mouth marketing, and we've just got a new tool set, new toolkit to go in and uh, exploit that um, you know, online and probably more, uh, more scale um, around the world. Yeah. And obviously, the remit I have is very much on the international side. So it's how do we do this at scale in the different markets with the different cultures? that we're seeing in the different um, parts of the world. And on practice, staying on the topic of budget, um, we typically see four budget methodologies, budget setting methodologies. I want to run each of those four by you and get your reaction to each. Maybe share with me some pros and cons of each. It's highly situational, um, of course, but I want to get these out there and just get your perspective on them. So the one that we most commonly see as a budget-setting method, is simply a percentage of revenue, which is some fixed amount expressed as a percentage. So if you're a $100 million company, you spend $10 million on marketing, then you have 10% spent. What are your thoughts on that, Chris, the pros and cons on that approach? Yeah, I mean, that's a traditional um, uh, method of calculating marketing spend, but that it all depends on the context of the marketplace. If you're a brand new technology looking to um, make a new entrance into a new area, clearly you're going to be spending a significant amount more to acquire customers in the new education phases, as it were. Um, in a mature market with established competition, established products, then it's how do you take share away from your competition and their more established model. So it does depend on the type of demand type in the marketplace and uh, the market dynamics. But that's a, that is a, a proven model out there, and it's the one that you typically have to look at because a lot of the ratios around sales and marketing spend as a proportion of revenue are, allowing, are aligned to certain industries and certain um, stages of maturation in those industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is useful to look at, but I think it has to be placed in the proper context, and that, that was some good advice as to how to do that. Okay, let's go to another common one that I see, which is competitive benchmarking. And this is, you know, establishing a peer group of companies that 
are reasonable to compare yourself to and then understanding how much uh, the peer group is spending uh, in marketing and kind of seeing what your spend is. Is it greater than, less than, et cetera? Chris, what are your thoughts on that, pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an, that's an equally valid one, and but you've got to take into account that it's all about the context. What context? It's what about the competitive market shares that are there for those that peer group? Um, what type of, um, again, industry are we talking about? Is it a mature industry? Is it one that is on the verge of brand new innovation and technology and disruption? You can look at, you know, first mover advantage and coming in there and outspending your competition to get that first mover advantage. Uh, it's all about the context, but traditionally in more mature markets, even the software industry where I came from, that was, a again, another key ratio that I looked at um, to be able to, again, build a business case to either increase or, you know, how do we drive more efficiency from our current marketing spend if we were spending more or less in the competition? Yeah. So I, I like this one as well. However, I advocate um, benchmarking at the program level. Um, you know, somebody can always outspend you. It's a question of do you have the budget allocated correctly across the programs and intelligently spending um, can give somebody an advantage, and I think that's the benefit of, uh, of competitive benchmarking. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, I'm going to ask Chris to comment on the two remaining types of budget-setting methods the affordability method and the objective method. However, we recently just recorded a podcast with Tim Huffmeyer, who is the CFO of Blackbox, which is a billion-dollar technology company. And he discusses how the CFO and the CMO should be working together to create this marketing budget. If you're new to the podcast or if you missed the Tim Huffmeyer podcast, I think you'll get a lot out of it. We'll be right back. Do you have too many things to do and not enough time to do them? Is finding time to learn best practices almost impossible? The SBI podcast is your solution. Turn time spent exercising, commuting, and traveling into productive learning time with a subscription to the SBI podcast. SBI podcast listeners get unique insight into real-world sales and marketing issues through interviews with your industry peers every week. Find us on iTunes by searching for Sales Benchmark Index Podcast and subscribe today. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, CEO of SBI, and today I'm I'm joined um, with Chris Majara, who is the CMO of McGraw-Hill Education. And right before the break, we were talking about the four forms of setting marketing budgets. Up to this point, we've spoke about the percentage of revenue method. We just concluded our conversation on competitive benchmarking. We're now going to move to the affordability method, and this is typically used by companies in trouble, and it is as it sounds. What can we afford? Um, you know, I, I'd like to spend X, Y, Z, but is it affordable based on the P&L, et cetera? Chris, do you have any thoughts or comments on the affordability method? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a case of um, making consumption choices. I mean, you've got to have a business strategy in place and a plan the whole organization, sales, marketing, product teams of executing against. And you've got to be able to set yourselves up for success. And if that means that, you know, through the, the analysis, you need to be spending more um, to achieve your goals and objectives, then you've got to stop doing some other stuff. Um, but when you're in survival mode, it's extremely tough. Mm-hmm. And you, that's what it comes down to, in my experience, is very much making very tough consumption choices around every single dollar that's being sent 
expense, but there's no easy way out. You've got to be able to prioritize correctly to drive ultimately an increase in sales and market share. You know, what makes this one particularly hard is earlier in the conversation, you talked about how important it was to analyze forward-looking metrics. And if you're going to embrace the affordability budgeting method, that's even more important because you have to have conviction to continue to spend and answering the question, can we afford this, can only happen by looking at data. Yep. When it comes to very important things like brand building, you mentioned that you were rebranding McGraw-Hill Education to be a digital provider. And sometimes it's difficult, especially for finance people, to measure the impact that a brand may have on a income statement. How do you handle that one? Yeah, I mean, it, it's where we're now absolutely in the, in the middle of a complete brand transformation, uh, reworking our whole value proposition, company positioning, narrative, messaging. And, and, you know, we're having to do the groundwork, foundational work in investing and getting all of that content together and then rolling that out first out internally and, and then ultimately externally to our customers. But the brand building has got to be tied together with demand generation as well. And it's that linkage there that I think, you know, when, you're, when you don't have the large million-dollar budget, every dollar that you're spending on demand generation, there's got to be some brand building elements there in there as well. And um, it, 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 at some stage, you've got to go and go away and make the case to get that upfront investment to do that heavy lifting work. Um, but then on an ongoing basis, you need to tie that very closely to demand generation activities. Mm-hmm. All right, that takes us to our fourth and final type of budgeting that I see, which is my personal favorite, and it's called objective-based budgeting. Sometimes this is referred to as zero-based budgeting. And it says here that, you know, here's a list of objectives that we're trying to get done, um, and here's what it's cost, going to cost to do that. So it's, you know, we don't start with any preconceived notions. We should invest this month, this much or that much. It's what are we trying to do? You know, how is the marketing strategy reflective of the corporate strategy? Are these mission critical objectives? And if so, they need to be properly funded. And I think this is an excellent way of doing budgets. Unfortunately, it's not common. Um, Chris, what's your opinion on zero-based budgeting or objective-based budgeting? I'm a big fan of it and a big believer of it. And I think the opportunity to drive that type of new thinking with a blank piece of paper every year or every couple of years, you know, it happens when you are going through these transformations where you need to look at doing things very differently um, than you've done in the past, new capabilities, new ways of communicating with your end users. And it's what I hinted at before. We're having to make within McGraw-Hill Education very tough consumption choices, what are we going to stop doing? For example, complementary copies of books. You know, a large proportion of the promotional spend was spent um, conducting that type of activity, and now we're converting that to e-sampling and sparing up a lot of those funds to be actually able to do more uh, effective demand generation activities, um, brand building activities, and measuring um, the hell out of all of those programs. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, that's a very interesting example. So free copies of books versus e-sampling of books. My first uneducated thought is e-sampling is a lot more cost-effective than free copies of books. But then I started thinking to myself, well, geez, maybe not. Maybe there's some stand-up cost to get to the ability to provide somebody an e-sample. Is e-sample 
more cost effective and is that why you did it or is it more effective and is that why you did it? Uh, uh, it's definitely more cost effective and we're looking very closely at the trials in terms of effectiveness. We have still a very conservative audience who typically still want to touch and feel or see um, the books and the particular chapters in the book. So it isn't a flick of the switch, we'll just turn it off. It's a, a gradual uh, evolution and weaning our audience off of a, a very traditional model that they've seen in the past. So um, it is a case of dialing it down and dialing up the more, um, more or the different types of communications, other key chat fire, other key channels that we're looking to now develop through digital marketing activities. Um, but it all comes back to measuring the effectiveness of uh, everything that we're doing, and that will then tell us whether it's working or not. You know, you said something there that's really interesting. I want to ask a follow-up question, which is, you know, you're in a very traditional industry, and you come from the software industry and were progressive in your previous stops, and you probably have a bag of tricks, so to speak, that you want to implement. However, you have to be careful that the industry that you're now in, what will their receptivity of these new forms of digital marketing be? So how do you assess that ahead of time? It's testing and, and proving it out and, and learning. Um, one of the key things that I've learned with this particular industry is that um, best practices, we've seen some great case studies, references of uses of our new technology and the impact that they've had on student outcomes. But it is still, teaching is a very individual, personal experience. And there are no set um, standards, even though lots of governments want to put in core standards. Um, teaching methods and methodology, it's up to the teachers ultimately how they want to organize their lessons, what materials they want to use. Mm. It's a very one-to-one um, environment, and it's a very private environment. No one has really opened up um, and shared those experiences widely. And um, now that we've got technology and big data even, coming into play where the use of technology is helping professors, instructors, teachers assess the, the progress of their classroom. You know, the good teachers did this, of course, intuitively or through regular quizzes, regular tests, and knew which students were performing well, which weren't. Um, now you can, with the use of the software and the data and the dashboards, um, get that in real time. And that's the big advantage. So. It's a huge transformation, and it's going to be a it's going to be a journey. It's mm. not something that you know everyone is biting uh, each other's arms off to get at the moment. We've seen great pockets of adoption, um, but what I'm learning is that it's it's going to take a lot more than just best practices and case studies to get um, all of the different um, players in place um, up to the same level of um, appreciation of the impact that the software can have. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, I'm going to ask Chris to wrap up all of his advice today into an action plan on something that you can implement after listening to this. I wanted to draw your attention to a recent blog post that seems to be doing very well. It has a provocative title, Is Your CMO the Real Deal? If you're not already subscribed to the blog, here's how to subscribe. You want to invest in yourself, but don't have time to attend conferences or even read books. In less than five minutes each day, the SBI blog delivers a best practice to make your number, an accompanying tool to help you implement the idea, and mobile-optimized ideas you can share easily with your team. Go to salesbenchmarkindex.com and subscribe today. 
Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, CEO and co-founder of SBI. And we're talking with Chris Majara, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of McGraw-Hill Education. And we just had a detailed conversation around transforming a company that has been around for 125 years into an organization that's trying to stay relevant for the next 125 years through digital technologies. We spent a lot of our time on you know the issue of budget, getting it, reallocating it, spending it correctly. And we tried to apply some science to the setting of a budget, and we reviewed the four common ways to do that. What I want to do now is wrap up with some type of action plan. So if you just spent the last 30 minutes listening to Chris and myself on this podcast, you might be wondering, you know, what do I do right now? So I have some thoughts on that, which I'll lead with here, and then I'll give Chris some time to collect his thoughts and and maybe suggest a few tactical things that somebody can go do. So if you are a CMO working for a company trying to execute a pivot, as Chris is, and you need to modernize the marketing team to do so, to be honest, my recommendation is just do what Chris does, which is invest your marketing budget wisely, um, for there is only so much money available. If you need help bringing some science to the budgeting process, uh, one resource, there's many, but one is our site, which is salesbenchmarkindex.com. And if you click on the About Us section, you'll click on Our Services, you'll see a service offering titled Budget Planning. And if you click on that, um, we present to you our methodology. We provide some definitions around these four budget Uh, setting methodologies themselves and some tools, so that might be helpful for you. But Chris, let me turn my attention to you. Outside of that, I'm sure that you're constantly educating yourself on these things. If you were somebody listening to this podcast and dealing with what you're dealing with maybe, you know, a year ago, you know, first entering this challenge, what advice would you give them? Um, It's it's really working closely with the team, the leadership team, to spell out that vision of where the organization is going. It's effectively the marketing team has to be the, the change agent within the organization and make sure that um, that transformation, the repositioning of the organization, people understand because the brand is made up of all of it. Every single employee is the key brand ambassador. So you need to really have that um, clear vision articulated um, and formulated um, and rolled out through your employees, then ultimately to the marketplace. Uh, that's the starting point, and bring the rest of the um, senior leadership team with you um, to execute against that vision. And of course, you've got to go through and assess the, the talent within the organization. Where do you need to bring in new blood, um, new people, new capabilities to really look at um, the new digital marketing systems, infrastructure, and processes that can ultimately turn you into a data-driven organization that is truly um, geared up to deliver a superior customer experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I really want to thank you. You, Based on your track record, you could be a CMO in any company that you wanted to be, and you've demonstrated great courage here by taking your skills and, and going into an industry that needs to be transformed. You know, a lot of people would run away from that, and they would stick to you know what they've done in their lifetime because it's easier and it's less work, and we're all the the uh, we're all benefiting from that by being able to watch from a distance what it is that you're doing. And I'll speak on behalf of myself and the SBI team and all the members who are listening to you right now. 
We're all rooting for you, and uh, we, we wish you much continued success. Thank you very much, Craig. M- very much appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the SBI Podcast. For more information on SBI services, case studies, the SBI team and how we work, or to subscribe to our other offerings, please visit us at salesbenchmarkindex.com.